Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler, and I am the special temporary primary host on an ongoing basis. And joining me today is Greg Knuckles. He is currently, at least for for the time being, the permanent guest co-host for now. Uh, Greg, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Before we get into the content today, I want to start by thanking everyone who subscribed during our big mass anniversary sale. We really appreciate the support there, so welcome to all of our new subscribers. If you missed out, I have great news. You can still subscribe. It's just not a sale anymore. Uh, But if you want to support the show in other ways, there are a lot of different ways. That's some strong pitch work. (laughs) (laughs) There are other ways you can support the show. You can like, rate, or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. You could go to strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter and join our email newsletter list. You can go to bulksupplements.com and use our discount code SBSPOD. That will get you a 5% discount. The stock market is roaring, so take those 5% uh, gains and put it all in the market. That seems to be going super well today. Uh, Again, Mass Research Review is one way that you could support us by subscribing or You could check out uh, Macrofactor. That is the diet app that we created uh, that is subscription-based, but you can try a free trial just to see if you like it. Uh, Road to the stage. How's it going, Greg? Road to the stage, yeah. So uh, once again this week, not much to report. Um, So, And and there's a reason for that. So I've talked about this on the podcast before. I do... for many years, I consumed virtually no fiber in my diet uh, beyond fruit. Um, it consistently gives me, uh, well, you know, okay. So most of the fiber sources that I opted for tended to cause a fair bit of GI distress. Like if, if I would just have a lot of cruciferous vegetables or uh, especially a lot of beans, I don't know why, but that shit would just fuck me up. Uh, I would feel like trash, not even like gassy. I would just feel like I, I would just feel like I was dying. Like I would feel like a bloated corpse. Um, so anyway, I've had a very low fiber diet for a long time. Uh, but I decided like, you know what, let's try to find a source of fiber that agrees with me because, you know, there are plenty of benefits of, of having more fiber in your diet. Uh, so I hit upon something that... Uh, it, it, a food item that I used to consume a fair bit, just completely forgot about it for a few years, but this Road to the Stage segment comes with a recommendation, which is to check out just grains that you can cook and eat the same way you would rice. So for example, for example, like bulgur wheat, uh, frika, uh, pearled barley. So you know, it's basically just like the the berries of various sweets or grains. Um, you know, the husk is still intact. The fiber is still there. And yeah, you just submerge it in water, boil it, cook it the same way you would like rice, for example. Um, but it's great. Uh, it hasn't been uh, affecting me the same way that cruciferous vegetables and beans do, which is a plus. Um, and also, like, it tastes nice. So I... When it comes to my bread habits, I'm a child. I despise whole wheat bread. I don't despise it. I'm I'm overstating things, but I don't like it. Uh, you know, I I prefer just a nice white bread. I don't like the taste of whole wheat bread. Um, 
But for whatever reason, the taste of whole grains, when you just uh, cook them and eat them as grains, I find so much more pleasant. It might just be a textural thing. Um, but it, like texture-wise, I think I, I even prefer them to rice because like they like there there's more texture there i guess like there's a little bit more resistance to your to your tooth when you uh when you bite through them uh nice nutty flavor like the the flavor notes that people talk about with whole wheat bread that they talk about in a nice way i don't like them in in whole wheat bread for whatever reason but when it's just like isolated in a single cooked grain i find it very nice um but anyway, as this relates to the Road to the Stage segment, uh, something that you see pretty consistently in the research is that when people either go from a low-fiber to a high-fiber diet or a high-fiber to a low-fiber diet, there's generally like a like maybe one, one and a half percent shift in body weight one way or the other, just because, you know, you now have more fiber in your system, more intestinal contents, basically. Um, I, I mean, full of shit. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, full of shit, but like in a, in a way that's in general good for your GI health. Um, so anyway, I, I fully anticipated my weight to go up, uh, two or three pounds when I started eating a lot more fiber. It did. And within a week, it's already back down to about what it was before. So I think in real terms, like my, my total, uh, uh, net metabolizable energy stored in my body is probably down about a pound this week. Number on the scale is about the same. I'm attributing that to the fiber. Uh, but uh, yeah, if you don't... So if you're struggling to get more fiber in your diet, you don't like eating a ton of beans, you don't like eating a ton of vegetables, you know, maybe you eat a lot of rice, maybe you eat a lot of potatoes, maybe you're just looking for some other carb source to try, uh, find some bulgur, find some pearl barley, find some frica. There, there, there are several others as well. Uh but they're great. A lot of fiber, tastes good, would highly recommend. So you and I are a little bit different in terms of diet and nutrition. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard about this, but after one of my competitive uh, bodybuilding seasons, I was trying to like kind of ease my way back up to my, my kind of typical walk around weight, um, which was going to involve considerable weight gain. But I was trying to, you know, just kind of make it a slow, steady process. So I was like, how am I going to find foods to eat that will facilitate this? Because I was ravenously hungry. Mm -hmm. And so I would go to work every day. I would take a, a one gallon Ziploc bag and stuff it. And I, I mean, like I would have to squeeze it to zip it shut, stuff it with just raw, uncooked broccoli. Yeah, that's fucked up. Um, and then I would take a second one gallon Ziploc bag and fill it to its capacity with raw carrot and so i i could do raw carrot yeah that, so that's fine that's that was fine. i got fewer looks for that and this is this is by the way not a recommendation i was young and i was just trying to find things that i would that i could feel like i was eating all day and not gain like 75 pounds in the first three weeks um but anyway i got a lot of looks for that and honestly i enjoyed it very much uh i don't know if i would go back to it but yeah, the the cruciferous vegetables and just kind of snacking on raw uncooked vegetables all day. Never a problem for me. Have have I told do you remember if I've told my my raw cabbage story on the you podcast? Have, yeah. Yeah. Uh if I, I think if I went that route, I would literally die. <laughs> Probably so. 
Uh, all right, so Road to Athens, uh, no running yet. Um, as I mentioned previously, uh, I'm about 0 for 9 going through the kind of standard route of medical care. Uh, but Jason, you're uh, the physical therapist at Stronger by Science on, on our coaching staff literally is a wizard and a magician so in about three messages he figured out what was wrong with me um i'm kind of easing my way into implementing some of those tips uh but for now no running yet but i've been having a really good time just kind of rediscovering my enthusiasm for exercise in general now that i'm exercising uh, a little more regularly and getting my hip moving in different ways uh i'm a terrible swimmer which is actually great because i've been doing swimming workouts and man, my caloric expenditure is through the roof just because like if you suck at swimming, swimming is just a bottomless pit of calorie expenditure. Like I'm flailing in every possible direction except moving forward. Uh, so it's been a great it's been great for working out. Not great if I were to like fall off a boat in open water. <laughs> um, but anyway, I've been enjoying my swimming workouts. Um playing more basketball, working on the left hand, dribbling, getting some left hand uh, layups and even some some mid-range jumpers up with the left hand, trying to really build it up. So in the near future, I'm going to be getting onto the court and, and getting competitive and it's going to be something to see. Uh, but for now, just kind of building up skills and getting moving uh, and just generally strengthening my abdominal musculature and the musculature surrounding the hip. And yeah, so far, so good. Uh, now feats of strength, Greg, what do you got this week? Yeah. So I, I've got one and I've also got a little segment behind it. So, uh, last episode talked about Christoph Wierbicki hitting the third biggest deadlift of all time in training. Uh, he pulled 490 kilos, uh, raw with straps in the gym, uh, which at the time was the third biggest deadlift ever done. And before that episode came out, uh, he he obsoleted that prior PR, uh, and he pulled 502 and a half kilos, which is 1,108 pounds. That's in not training. by a little bit. That's an, yeah, that's it's, an it's enormous a jump. Tw- 12 and a half kilo PR. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, you, you can watch the video. It'll be linked in the show notes. It's a it's a rock solid deadlift. Like it looks great. Uh, not going to litigate the straps versus no straps. If you want our opinions on that, listen to the feats of strength segment in the last episode. Um, but yeah, super impressive stuff. And that is to my knowledge. And I think to everyone's knowledge, uh, the heaviest deadlift anyone has ever done, uh, like, you know, with, with any sort of qualifiers you want to put on it it's the most weight that was at one point on the floor that someone in one fluid motion, uh, lifted off the ground to lock out. Uh, insanely impressive stuff. And, you know, like we mentioned last episode, uh, the other, the only other members of the 500 kilogram club are Eddie Hall and Thor, who were big old boys when they pulled those, those weights. And Weir Bicky, uh, is around 105 kilos, like 230, which is big old boy by just like normal standards, but is, uh, kind of typical average size boy by by powerlifting standards, and certainly much smaller than than Eddie and Thor. So, insanely impressive, and so that begs the question: uh, you know what's what's going on here? So there's a current a current hot topic uh, in the fitness world, 
And that is, is sumo deadlifting cheating? Uh, the, I think, flashpoint for this was uh, uh, elite natural, or not natural, uh, classic phys- classic bodybuilding, classic physique. What There are so many bodybuilding divisions. Which, which one does Bumstead compete in? He has a nice physique. That, that's it, the extent of my knowledge. I think it's classic bodybuilding. That sounds right. Okay. Uh, not natural. Misspoke there. Classic bodybuilding. Um, so, yeah. Uh, he's. I think he's won the last two or three Olympias in that division. Uh, great physique. Um, and, yeah, he, he recently said, I think on, like, an Instagram live stream or Q&A that sumo deadlift was cheating. Uh, and Jeff Nippard recently put out a in-depth video responding to that claim discussing whether or not sumo deadlifting is cheating uh we'll link jeff's video in the show notes i think that he did a really good job uh rebutting the claim that sumo deadlifting is cheating uh we'll also link a stronger by science article in the show notes that goes over many of the same points uh but yeah so um this this is something that people are talking about, and I, I am in the camp that sumo deadlifting is not cheating, but uh, when people see Christoph Wierbicki pull a heavier deadlift at 230 than super heavyweight strongmen have pulled at 400 plus, it makes people wonder, like, okay, like, this, this, this is clearly, you know, it's more weight at a way lighter body weight. He has to be getting a huge advantage from pulling sumo, right? Um... And so, you know, you can look at the research and say, uh, both research and just competitive results, and say, on average, it doesn't seem like there's much of a difference between sumo and conventional deadlift. You know, it's not, it's not something where, like, everyone's going to pull way more weight sumo than they do conventional. They're not just fundamentally different exercises. Um, and, and you can say that, and you can cite research. And, and like I said, if, if you hear me saying this and you have a knee-jerk response that like, oh no, like that that has to be wrong. Like they have to use completely different musculature, very different lifts. Uh, check out the Stronger by Science article. Check out Jeff's video. I, I don't feel like relitigating all of that on the podcast. But I do want to address the very understandable observation that, you know, there are some people uh, some really good sumo deadlifters, and you look at what they pull sumo, and you're like, there are no conventional deadlifters within the same zip code. Like, we're Bicky, he competes at, at 231, like I said, uh, pulling 1100 off the ground in training. There are no conventional deadlifters in that weight class who are close to that number. Um, so, you know, that very understandably makes people think like, you know, regardless of what the science says, there has to be something going on here uh, that is allowing people to get some sort of huge advantage from the sumo deadlift. Uh, and I think that they're actually correct in that observation, but that doesn't discount the fact that on average, there doesn't seem to be that much of a difference. So uh, basically what I, want, what I want to talk about here is the difference i guess between <laughs> between averages and uh you know kind of the the breadth of a distribution and how that can present itself for outliers so essentially my perspective on this is that you know 
some people are going to do better with sumo some people are going to do better with conventional on a population level the differences between the two probably aren't particularly large but there are definitely some people who seem to get a huge advantage from the sumo deadlift and the reason i think that is is the different strength curves between the two exercises so for not all but most sumo deadlifters the hardest part of the lift is right off the floor so if you can break the bar off the floor and not have to sacrifice all of your positioning to do so you can lock it out like basically <laughs> once that bar starts moving if if you're if you don't already find yourself in a horrendous position you're going to be able to lock it out um whereas that's not the strength curve for conventional deadlifts so for conventional deadlifts the weakest part of the lift tends to be somewhere in the general mid shin area um so you can look at this uh in in studies that like report uh like velocity time curves so the point of peak deceleration uh in a conventional deadlift that you grind is generally eh, like two or three inches off the floor so you're not some people are but most people aren't the very very weakest off the floor in a conventional deadlift like there are generally weights that you can break from the floor that you can't get past your knee and lock out so you're dealing with slightly different strength curves there and so essentially what i think is going on is that for some people who both have the hip structure for sumo deadlifts to really agree with them and who also have really great leverages for sumo deadlifting and by that i mostly just mean really long arms uh they can essentially cut out a large enough portion of the really really weak part of the range of motion that kind of in practical terms they're sort of doing a partial if that makes sense and sumo deadlift is such like the strength curve is such that if you can kind of get in that position where you're doing a pseudo partial it can pay huge huge dividends whereas that's not the case so much with conventional deadlift and and you can kind of test this for yourself so if you're someone who has a decent bit of experience with both sumo and conventional deadlift what you can do is just go to the gym and just do a like a 3 inch block pull one rep max and compare that to your maxes from the floor so uh just speaking for me personally So I have I have really short arms. It's very unfortunate. Uh Eric just mentioned basketball. I play a lot of basketball. Long arms, big wingspan, good for basketball. I don't have them. Can't clog up passing lanes the way I'd like to. It's unfortunate. Also affects my deadlift. Uh and so um yeah, like my conventional deadlift, my <laughs> my best pull from the floor is 735. and my best pull from from 3 in like 3 or 4 inch blocks is like 740 so um and and that's basically because like you know my weakest point in the deadlift is basically where a 3 or 4 inch block pull is starting so i'm going to have to go through that range of motion with a pull from the floor i'm going to start at that part of the range of motion for a 3 4 inch block pull so ultimately it doesn't make that much of a difference If I do like a 6-inch block pull like still below the knees, I I'm I am going to be able to pull more weight, but it's still not like a huge night and day difference, but then once I get above my knee, you know, I can pull way way more weight. For sumo on the other hand, and 
Unfortunately, I don't have video of this. You're just going to have to trust me. Uh, my best deadlift from the floor, Sumo, is... What is it? It's either 705 or 725. I don't do Sumo and meet, so I don't pay that close of attention. But it's somewhere in the low 7s. I've pulled 850 from a 4-inch block. Uh, or 855 from a 4-inch block Sumo. So we're talking an enormous difference. And so if I was someone whose arms just happened to be four inches longer, which wouldn't be freaky outlier proportions. Like that would, that would, if anything, give me more normal proportions. I would have a huge advantage pulling sumo. Um, and, and I essentially think that's basically what's going on. So if someone has the hips for sumo, which I do, and they also have relatively long arms so they can get in a starting position that would be equivalent to a starting position of a low block pull for someone with shorter arms. They're they're cutting off uh, a relatively large portion of the range of motion that would otherwise be the hardest part of the range of motion. And, and you just don't get that same dynamic with the conventional deadlift. And so essentially what I'm proposing is that for the vast majority of individuals, like 95% plus of people, you don't have to worry about that. Like, that dynamic isn't in play. Uh, you know, sumo will feel better for some people. Conventional will feel better for some people. Uh, I think largely just based on hip structure. But I think if you are one of the people who has hips that are well-suited to sumo and who also has kind of outlier body proportions to allow allow your setup from the floor to be comparable to a low block pull setup for another person... I do think that 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 for for that small minority of lifters can net them a pretty big advantage in the sumo deadlift. And so, you know, then that begs the question, the framing device for this segment, is sumo cheating? And I would say, no, absolutely not. Uh, I mean, ultimately, the point, so one, you know, you can just look at the rules, like, in powerlifting, is sumo allowed? Yes, okay, cool, it's not cheating. Uh, and then two, on average, does it seem to be way, way easier than conventional for most people? No, not really. Uh, but then it's like, okay, for a small minority of people, it does seem to give a pretty big advantage where if those same people with really great body proportions for conventional, dead, or just great body proportions for deadlifting in general, like if you have those proportions... It's going to help you for both sumo and conventional, but it might help a little bit more for sumo than it does for conventional. And so then that begs the question like, okay, well, is, is it cheating or in some way unfair that they get a bigger boost from sumo uh, than, than they would conventional uh, due to their outlier body proportions? And like, I think that just kind of depends on your conception of fairness. Um like, I, f I fundamentally think it's fine. Like, those people have access to an advantage that most people don't have access to. But ultimately, that's just the name of the game in elite sports. <laughs> like, uh, every, every sport on the planet at a high level is basically just like, hey, everyone's playing by the same rules. Uh, and who has the physiology that allows them to best take advantage of those rules? And, you know, for, for, the, for the very, very freaky sumo deadlifters out there, you know, I, I think they just hit the lottery, and I think it is what it is, and that's fine. And it's it, that's not just like a weird quirk of sumo being allowed in powerlifting. That's like how it works for everything. So, 
you know, like uh, uh, NBA playoffs are going on right now, and you look at Giannis's absolute wizardry around around the rim. Like he's so tall, his arms are so long, he's so fucking quick, he's so explosive, and he has an insane touch around the basket. Uh, and so, you know, scores a ton of points in the paint with crazy efficiency, and he can penetrate into the paint way better than most people because. He can take such long strides, change direction so well, and he's so quick. That gives him a huge tangible advantage compared to virtually everyone he plays against. But no one would say that's cheating. It's just like, oh, well, Giannis won the genetic lottery for basketball. And uh, yeah, I think Christoph Weirbicki won the genetic lottery for deadlifting. Uh, and that's fine. Um so yeah, I, I I think I think that there are individuals who do get a huge boost in performance from having access to sumo uh, that other people aren't like other people aren't going to have access to that advantage just because they they don't have the build for it. Um, but I fundamentally think that's fine, uh, and I don't think that on average sumo gives the sort of advantage that would lead one to classify it as cheating. Yeah, I mean, like you said, when you start looking at uh, high achievers in any remotely athletic contest, um, you know, you, you, you look at the highest level performers and almost always you can start to identify ways that they were kind of built for what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's kind of to be expected when there's a, uh, a large pool of potential competitors. And so like, yeah, I mean, watch the Olympics, you know, every four years and they'll say, Hey, we're going to do a little segment about why Michael Phelps is built to be a swimmer and why, uh, uh, bolt is, is built to be a sprinter, you know, and, and, or uh, or like Kipchoge being built for the marathon, built to be a marathoner. Yeah. Yeah. In almost every instance, you can start to look at these characteristics that are advantageous for the sport. And what do you know? The high achievers happen to have them. Uh, I, I remember hearing a story. I was going. I was at a physiology lecture, and they were talking about outliers in various um, physiological capacities. And they were talking about uh, a mountain climber back in the day. I forget his name, but he, he's you know kind of a renowned, uh, like one of the greats of all time. And apparently, early in his mountain climbing career, he was mostly confused. He would go on climbs with groups of people. And he would keep going and going and going. And he'd be like, why is everyone slowing down? Uh, you guys don't seem like you can breathe. Is every, like, what is happening here? Uh, and only later did they start to recognize that he was truly an outlier in terms of uh, the way he was able to handle oxygen at altitude. You know, he had physiological characteristics that made him just a completely different breed when it came to mountain climbing. So, yeah, I, I don't um, I don't think it makes sense to kind of take that approach and, and say, well, oh, it's just because someone has advantages for a sport, that's unfair. Uh, if anything, that seems to be the rule for sport rather than the exception. You yeah. know, high level competitors generally are, are are really optimized for what they do. And some of that is uh, just the luck of the draw, you know, and and yeah, like you said, uh you know, if you're convinced that if you're a power lifter and you're upset that people are are cheating by doing sumo, just do sumo. You know, yeah. it, if it were really that uh, that much of an advantage across the board, then you just wouldn't find conventional deadlifters. 
or, or you wouldn't find many of them. Yeah. But yeah. Oh, and, and one more thing I'll note as well. Um, so this is something that Jeff mentioned in his video that I, I don't think he really went in depth uh, explaining. But one thing that you do see in powerlifting that, that makes all the sense in the world through the lens that I'm using to frame this this segment. Where basically, like, if you're built in such a way that sumo lets you cut off a large enough portion of the bottom part of the lift, largely just due to how you're built, you may get a huge boost from it. So through that lens, uh, one thing that you can observe is that the sumo deadlift is quite a bit more popular than the conventional deadlift for shorter lifters. So lightweight males and lightweight and middleweight females and then the conventional deadlift is quite a bit more popular in the heavier weight classes for both sexes and is super popular for the super heavyweight class for male lifters because supers tend to be pretty tall. Um, and so I think what explains that is that the <laughs> the range of motion for a deadlift is very arbitrary. So, you know, it's, it's always determined by the radius of the plates. That determines how high off the ground the bar is. And so it's starting higher relative to the shin for shorter lifters and lower relative to the shin for taller lifters. And so if you're a short lifter who also happens to have long arms, or even if you don't have long arms, it, it's just relatively a shorter range of motion because you're a short person and, and the bar is starting higher on your shin. Whereas for taller people, even if you do have relatively long arms and a, a conventionally good build for deadlift, uh, the range of motion, relatively speaking, is just longer because the bar is starting relatively lower. Uh, and so I, I think that's basically what's going on. Like if, if you have long arms and you also happen to be short and you also happen to have hips that can let you adduct a lot, um, you know, you, you might very well have a hundred, 200, or if you're very strong, like a 300 pound difference between your sumo and conventional deadlift where you can pull more sumo. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's just kind of a quirk of the lift. Whereas if it's the opposite set of circumstances where, uh, and, and like, so the, the kind of test I mentioned you could do before of just comparing your sumo and conventional deadlifts from the floor versus a three, four inch block pull, you can do that opposite, uh, test with a deficit deadlift. And what many people will find is that if you do a sumo deadlift from like a three inch deficit, your numbers are going to go way, way down. Whereas if you do a conventional deadlift from a three inch deficit, your numbers probably won't be that different from the floor. Like you'll, you'll probably pull a little bit less, but not necessarily a night and day difference. So yeah, like I, I think that's, that's basically what's going on where if someone has relatively short arms, uh, especially combined with being a relatively tall person, Sumo gives them a pretty big disadvantage because it's it's just not compatible with how they're built. And kind of relatively speaking, it would be like a shorter person with longer arms pulling a deficit sumo deadlift. Um, so yeah, like I, I think that's one of the big factors. Uh, and I don't think Weir Bicky himself is particularly short. He just has really long arms uh, and he can, he can abduct super well. Um, yeah, so I, I think that that uh, explains the the trend observed in lifters of sumo being more popular with shorter lifters, conventional being more popular with taller lifters. I, I think it's just owing to the fact that that range of motion itself is is fairly arbitrary, and the radius of the plates kind of happens to be 
in that nether realm where <laughs> for some people uh it, it is going to result in sumo giving a relatively large advantage and for some people conventional giving uh, a relatively large advantage over sumo uh if if people wanted to make that completely fair where it's just like hey we're, we're gonna take uh like the the relative height effect out of it and completely um you know do away with the sumo or just the deadlift in general starting relatively higher on the shins for shorter people lower for taller people what they could do is just have the bar start on the floor where you know like the the, the plates are kind of underground almost and then there's a little kind of like gap where you can like get your hands around the bar but just the bar is starting at floor height and it's floor height for everyone uh that would kind of level the playing field um and uh i think i think under those circumstances most people would pull conventional um and also most people would pull with enormous spinal flexion that would be that would be fun to see as an experiment to really test the hypothesis of is spinal flexion dangerous i, I think if powerlifting shifted over to that style of deadlift for a year we 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 could have a, a pretty decent estimate um but yeah i mean that that's just another thing to note powerlifting overall uh both both uh deadlift and also bench press there are advantages of being a short powerlifter um so already talked about deadlift it's starting relatively higher on your shins might increase the odds that you can get a pretty big boost from being able to deadlift sumo another advantage that short powerlifters have is just that uh like you can go relatively wider on the bench press uh and we've talked about this before too where when when people get upset about the really really short ranges of motion for competitive powerlifters, it's almost always the lighter weight lifters. And there's a reason for that. Lighter lifters tend to be shorter lifters. Shorter lifters tend to have shorter arms, and the maximum bench press width is 81 centimeters for everyone. So if you're five foot two and you're benching with an 81 centimeter grip width, like your arms are almost <laughs> completely out to your sides to start with. Uh, Whereas if someone's six four with long arms, if they go eighty one centimeters, like that's still kind of a moderate grip bench press. Um, so yeah, like being short gives you access uh, sometimes, like depending on muscle insertions, how you're built more generally. But kind of on average, it gives you access to certain techniques that taller lifters just don't have access to. Um, but yeah, I mean that like that's that's just how how the sport is. Like that's that's how it works. All right, good stuff. So I think I'm going to answer a few Q and A questions, yeah, uh, and then we'll we'll jump back to your uh, article discussion after that. Cool. So uh, I want to jump in here with some uh, questions from listeners. Uh, so first of all, nice, quick, easy one. I had a question from Arjan, Arjan, and the question was: Considering the road to enlightenment. Is there a vegetarian variation of the culinary shredded chicken staple? Uh, so basically back in the day when I was an omnivore, I would cook a bunch of shredded chicken in bulk and I would leave it pretty, pretty plain. And that way throughout the week, I could utilize it for a variety of different types of dishes. You know, I could have more of like an Italian kind of theme or a Mexican kind of, you know, I could do tacos with it. Whatever I wanted to do, I could kind of build around that basic protein source. Um, you know, one of my big protein sources currently is uh, chickpea curry. 
um, which is really nice, but it doesn't have a lot of versatility. It kind of, you know, there, there's a lot of really bold flavors in it, uh, a lot of seasoning. So, you know, that curry is going to taste like that curry no matter what. So it is a staple in my diet, but it's not that same kind of interchangeable protein source like I had with the shredded chicken. Uh, I think the closest thing I have right now would be cubed tofu. And so what I'll do is I'll cube up tofu into little, you know, little squares and I will uh, cook them in the oven. I'll basically uh, coat them in a mixture of soy sauce and cornstarch. Doing soy sauce alone without the cornstarch, not advisable. The cornstarch is really nice because it allows it to crisp up, which is really nice for the texture. And it just kind of retains a little bit more of the flavor, like the soy sauce flavor, I think. Uh, So I'll put that in the oven um, and and just do a huge bulk preparation of a bunch of cubed tofu with soy sauce and cornstarch. And that's about as close as I've gotten where, uh, you know, pretty much any savory dish, if, 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 you know, if I wanted to have like, uh, I, I could probably use them in tacos if I wanted to, I can put them into any kind of soup that I've made and they work pretty well. Um, but yeah, I've noticed that the cubed tofu, it's also great for stir fries if you're just looking to kind of put something together really quick. Uh, but in terms of, uh, vegetarian alternatives, that's, that's probably my best, uh, approximation that I have currently. Uh, next question from RJ Francisco. He mentioned that, uh, he or she, I'm not sure, mentioned that, uh, they loved the talk about structuring goals. Uh, so we had an article about that and a pretty long podcast segment as well. Uh, and the question is about whether or not I have any insight about procrastination. So this individual is going back to school, needs some help uh, with procrastination, and also mentioned this might be a helpful topic for people who uh, kind of put off going to the gym and potentially even skip the gym because they keep putting it off and delaying and things like that. So I definitely wouldn't claim to be uh, a subject matter expert on procrastination, but I have gotten more and more into some psychology research uh, in recent months. So I I did skim some literature uh, so that I could answer this uh, in a fairly evidence-based manner, not purely just going on anecdote. So uh, first of all, the kind of defining procrastination, I, I found a pretty good definition for it, which is the voluntary delay of an intended and necessary Uh, or important activity, despite expecting potential negative consequences that outweigh the positive consequences of the delay. Uh, So the the primary factors here are you're delaying an activity that you know you should be doing. And one of the kind of defining characteristics is that when you make the decision to delay doing this, you consciously know that this is not in your best interest. You know that there are going to be ramifications for it. And so For that reason, when you look at some of the literature on procrastination, they'll mention it as an irrational behavior. And that's irrational in kind of the textbook sense. You know, if you're talking with someone, not a good idea to tell them that they're being irrational. That's a good way to really uh, have an unpleasant conversation that escalates from there. But what they mean by irrational is you are making a decision that is not rational in nature in the sense that you know that this is not in your best interest, but you are still delaying that activity. Um, but w- one thing that's important to keep in mind with procrastination is that in my experience, it is more of a behavior than a totally stable 
and universal personality trait. And so what I mean by that is some people might be more susceptible than others to procrastination, but even within the individual, you'll probably tend to find that it is uh, a, a bit task specific and context specific. So, you, you know, you might uh, procrastinate more than others, but there are probably certain uh, contexts in which you procrastinate more or certain tasks that you tend to procrastinate more. Uh, so so I, I try to mention that so that people don't think this just boils down to, you know, hey, there's people with willpower and there's people without. And if you procrastinate a lot, you know, that reflects really negatively on you as a person. I think it's important to realize that there is some specificity in terms of uh, when we elect to procrastinate. And so given that procrastination is not in our best interest, uh, one might ask, why do we do it in the first place? Um, you know, why would we do something that is not ultimately uh, the best choice for us? And part of it has to do with a term called temporal discounting. Uh, so we generally, um, psychologically, we tend to uh, we tend to really favor short term outcomes at the expense of long term outcomes. So like. When it comes to procrastination, temporal discounting puts us in a situation where we say, I know that there are negative consequences for this out in the future, but I also know that there is a short-term reward for delaying this thing I don't want to do. And temporal discounting refers to the fact that we will take that short-term reward even though uh, you know, we'll, we'll have more value for that reward in the short term, even though we know that there's usually an even bigger uh, downside coming down the line. But since it's far away, we don't seem to worry about it as much when we're making that decision. So temporal discounting is just that mismatch in terms of how we value things in the short term versus how we value things in the long term. Yeah, yeah. But I know that what I'm doing right now is going to happen. But Something that happens down the road. Who knows if I'll even still be around for that? Like, I, I somewhat frequently procrastinate getting in bed at night. I might die in the night. And I, <laughs> and I either will or I won't. There's two options. There's a 50-50 shot that I'm going to be dead in the morning. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, like, yeah, I, I think it's perfectly rational to procrastinate because I know that I'm guaranteed the moment that I'm currently in. That That is a good point. Uh, so, I haven't seen that raised in any of the literature that I that I peruse. Well, that's, that's a pretty big oversight. Yeah. But, but the general idea there is that the reward of doing something more enjoyable now outweighs the knowledge that we know we're going to be paying for it later. So that's part of it. Another part that, that I think is important to consider when you're asking why you're procrastinating is what are the characteristics of this particular task that are making you not want to do it? So uh, of course, there's just a general aversion to certain unpleasant activities. Perhaps you have some anxiety about the activity or anxiety about the fact that you know you can't mess up this activity. You know, it's it's very important. And so maybe you have some anxiousness about what would happen if you messed up. Or maybe you have a lack of self-efficacy for that task. Maybe you don't trust in your ability to do it well. And so for that reason, you're less likely to engage with it or you have more desire to delay it until you absolutely must do it. Um, it, it, it could be that you just lack intrinsic motivation for the behavior. Uh, generally speaking, intrinsic motivation seems to be much more powerful 
than extrinsic sources of motivation. So if you don't see this as something that is uh, driven by intrinsic motivation, if you don't see this as genuinely being a worthwhile task or something that is good for you personally, if you're just doing it because someone said you have to, uh, that makes it much more likely that you will procrastinate. Um, and, And then just generally speaking, if you are spending time ruminating over you know, instances in the past where you didn't enjoy this activity or it went poorly, or if, again, you're having anxiousness about the future consequences of doing this activity poorly, those can all kind of contribute to procrastination. So in terms of useful strategies, I think one thing that helps is, you know, approaching a task with curiosity. If you can find a way to do that, that usually helps me kind of embrace doing something if like if i'm kind of dreading writing something you know if i know i need to do an article sometimes it'll help if i say if i approach it with more curiosity and say what might i learn in the process of putting this article together you know sometimes that curiosity uh is enough to get me moving in the right direction um Sometimes I need to find a way to support my own sense of intrinsic motivation. So when I'm trying to find intrinsic motivation, I think a lot about self-determination theory. You know, am I, am I doing this task in a way that I have all of the sufficient competence, relatedness, and autonomy to really make me feel excited about doing it uh, and ultimately competent enough to do it well? And if not, then sometimes you start to notice, hey, I keep procrastinating this kind of cluster of tasks and what can I do so that as I'm doing those, I feel like I have more autonomy over how I do it uh, or I feel more relatedness in terms of the, the way I'm approaching it uh, or or I just feel more competent doing this task. Um, I think in some cases, mindfulness and acceptance-based interventions can be helpful. So just thinking through the fact that like, listen, this needs get to get done building up acceptance for that and thinking through, uh, you know, just kind of coming back to the present moment, trying to get rid of all the anxiety over the future, rumination over the past and say, I know this has to get done. And if I sit down and calm down and think my way through it mindfully, I will recognize that it only serves to, you know, it only works to my detriment if I continue to put this off. So if you can kind of build up that acceptance for the task, Use some mindfulness, get back to the present moment, stop having anxiousness about, you know, doing the task and disliking the task and what happens if you mess up the task. Just come back to the present moment, think through it, calm down a little bit, accept the fact that this will get done eventually, and you'll kind of work toward more of an understanding that doing it now is probably the best choice for you rather than delaying it. But I think one of the most important things we can target is something they call onset delay. So researchers looking into into procrastination often find that one of the key things that uh, promotes continued procrastination, one of the the real hallmarks of procrastination, isn't that people start doing it and then say, actually, screw that, I'm going to do something else. It's that they never actually start. It's delaying the onset of the activity, not doing a little and then leaving and then doing a little then leaving. So what you want to do is target that onset delay. And I think that there are some really creative ways that you can do that. So for example, uh, the person asking the question mentioned, if you're procrastinating for the gym, what can you do? Something that I've actually done in the past, which isn't like a perfect example, but it's something I have done is 
if I'm like, you know what, I'm dreading going to the gym. I don't really feel like it. In the past, I would sometimes just drink my pre-workout and I would say, okay, I am now hyper-caffeinated. So if I don't go to the gym, what's the point of being this caffeinated? Uh, I've now invested $1.50 into this workout because I had my dose of pre-workout or whatever they cost these days. I don't know. But you know, you, you start to say, okay, I have started the process of getting it to the gym. I've already made this kind of upfront initial investment. And this cascade of events that leads from me sitting here to getting to the gym has already begun. The onset has happened because I've taken the pre-workout, which leads to getting in the car, which leads to going to the gym, which leads to the workout. So if you can find a, uh, an interesting way to kind of break that inertia to get the process rolling and to target onset delay. I think that's one of the more interesting ways to uh, to kind of push back against an urge to procrastinate. So an example, if I'm kind of dreading doing a reading assignment or writing something, one of the things that I'll do is get my workspace ready for me to do it, right? So I might go make some tea. I might clear off my desk, get out the book that I'm going to be referencing the most when I'm writing, get the document loaded and ready to go, just setting the stage to begin. And what you'll find is that just by doing these preparatory uh, tasks, you are initiating that cascade of events to get you actually doing the thing that you are currently procrastinating. Uh, so that would be my kind of quick look at procrastination and some potential ways to overcome it, whether those, uh, w whether you're procrastinating something that's fitness related or something completely unrelated. Uh, a couple other quick ones, and then I'm going to throw to you for your article review. Oh, I can, can I just toss in an anecdote for that last one? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, I, I habitually, uh, procrastinate on writing stuff, uh, or, or at least I have previously. And for the last couple of months, something that's been helping me a lot is, is very similar to what you were just describing. And one of the things that I've noticed about myself is that my willpower to do things I don't want to do wanes pretty quickly throughout the day. And so, um, Basically, like my workday used to be oriented completely differently where like all of just the general emails and messages and shit I had to respond to, I'd take care of that first and be like, okay, now I have a block of time to do good writing, high value stuff for the business, uh, and there's nothing else hanging over me. And like in theory, I thought that should have worked, but uh, oftentimes I would get to that point in the day and just be like, fuck, I don't want to do any of this shit. Like it's hard. Uh, some of those things you mentioned before, like you know, this is important stuff. So like if I, if I mess it up, like there's going to be consequences, like whatever. So, um, yeah, I, I did that for years and it, uh, you know, I still did what I needed to, but it was, uh, not the smoothest process most of the time. So something I've done that, that has been helping me a lot is, uh, I'll, I'll try to set the stage for the next day, basically at the end of my workday. So, once I get done with, so now I do the important stuff first and then uh, respond to my emails, messages, stuff like that uh, closer to the end of the workday. And then what I do at the very, very end of the workday is whatever the most important thing I need to get done the next day is, I just go ahead and get all of that stuff pulled up on my computer before I turn, like before I power it down for the night. Uh, and if if I'm going to be doing stuff online, like I, I do all of my writing in Google Docs, um, I have like a website blocker where 
uh, I restrict access to every website that's not Google Docs. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, when I get on my computer the next day, studies I'm going to be referencing are already pulled up. I pulled them up the night before. Uh, the document that I need to work on is already pulled up. And if I try to type in another website, my browser will block me and say, you can't do that. And so if I wanted to procrastinate, I would need to go through the step with friction of manually disabling the website blocker and just kind of like committing to myself like, yeah, you're going to be a piece of shit today. Like you're you're intentionally not starting on the thing that you had determined you should have started on. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm removing friction that is between me and the thing I need to get done. And I'm adding friction between me and the other things that I would generally do to procrastinate and kill time. Um, and yeah, I, I would say that that has had probably like an 80% success rate. Like th there are definitely still some days where I'm like, nope, nope, I'm tired. I'm not starting on writing. I don't feel like it. I'm going to do some other stuff. And those work days tend to just <laughs> be a waste of time. And I look back at the end, I'm like, shit, ah, I, I should have started with writing. Uh, but yeah, like, like 80% of the time that, that tends to go pretty well. And it's, it's been helping a lot. Yeah, I've done the same exact things where um, it'll be closer to the end of the day and maybe I'm doing a collaboration where I'm going to run stats for somebody and I'll be like, I am not in the mental space to do this because, you know, it's, you know, research, they make it impossible to do corrections. You know, it's like a one year process filled with shame. Uh, you know, correcting research should be a lot easier than it is, but it's not. So when you're doing stats, there's the anxiousness of like, you have one shot here and if you put something dumb in your line of code, you're going to mess up the whole thing. It's going to be bad. So like sometimes I'll be like, all right, I'm not really in the mental state where I can go through this whole thing for three hours and be perfect and efficient. So I'll, I'll do kind of what you mentioned. I'll get my software up. I'll load the data set into the software. I'll take care of those preliminary steps. I'll, I'll bring up some resources if I need them. I'll get to everything except showtime. And then I'll shut it. Workday is over. I'll come back in the morning and I'll know everything's ready to go. Time to start. You got to be sharp for the next, you know, two hours when you're doing this analysis. But, but yeah, it's, it's kind of a way to just set the stage and say, I'm going to come back to this and it's going to be the first thing I do with pure focus, you know? Um, all right. So I do want to answer, uh, two more questions really quickly here. So one is from Kim and Kim asks, if you have to lose a lot of weight, would you break the cut into bits of 12 weeks with some maintenance periods in between, or would you do it in one big cut? Um, 12 weeks is the magic number that's going around on the internet. Um, I have not seen strong evidence to support this number. I, I think basically somebody kind of used it as the number that felt good to them, and then it just kind of propagated and kind of went everywhere. Wasn't 12 weeks uh, what they did in, in the Matador study? No. Oh, all right. Uh, you, no, so Matador was uh, two weeks on, two weeks off, repeated. Oh, okay. Yeah, so the 12-week the number, I, I, I think it was somebody's just kind of basic guideline that they're like, ah, that should be good, and it just got really popular. Uh, I've never really seen strong research to support that 12-week number, but nonetheless, whatever you think that number should be, I don't, I, I reject the premise of just having a set number. Um, there, 
may be benefits of doing diet breaks, whether they are physiological or psychological or just simply practical, right? Sometimes you get about 18 weeks into a diet and you say, you know what? Next week is vacation. I don't feel like being on a diet on vacation. So looks like a diet break. Or maybe you say, you know what? I've been dieting on and off for 42 weeks and the holidays are coming up. I know I'm going to have some meals. So maybe for the next six weeks, I kind of shift into maintenance mode. You know, there are a number of justifiable reasons to incorporate diet breaks or to press pause for extended periods of time during a cut. But I, I don't, I cannot think of a particular number of weeks that would be universally advisable. I, I think it really comes down to you, where you're at in the diet. If you feel like physiologically you just need a break from dieting, that's a great reason to take a diet break. If psychologically you feel like you need a break, again, that's a great reason to take a diet break or to shift to maintenance for a while. Uh, if life events require that you kind of take your foot off the gas pedal, again, totally advisable time to take a diet break. Um, but I only take diet breaks when I need them, you know? So if things are going really smoothly and I'm at 11 and a half weeks into my diet and I say, oh no, the 12 week threshold is coming. That means absolutely nothing to me. I'll keep going until I feel like I want or need a diet break. And physiologically, I've just never seen any reason to put a, a set limit on the number of weeks that you can continue with a sustainable diet. Um, and if your diet cannot be continued sustainably, then you probably want to take a break, shift to maintenance. And during that maintenance phase, think through how can I formulate potentially a more sustainable approach when I get things back moving? So uh, I, I don't see any reason to hold yourself to a set limit in terms of how long you can maintain a diet. It should be more how you're doing physiologically, how you're doing psychologically, and just what life is throwing at you at that particular time. Now, a somewhat related question um, is from Ola. And Ola asks, is there a need for a maintenance period after a bulk to make sure that the mass stays on? So this is looking, instead of saying, hey, do I need maintenance phases during cuts? This is after a bulk, do I need a maintenance phase to kind of solidify that new muscle tissue before I can, you know, transition into the next fat loss phase or cut? Uh, my answer would be no. Um, this is a common recommendation, and I wouldn't be shocked if I've potentially suggested something along these lines in the past, um, you know, way back. But after, you know, putting a lot of thought into it, I think this is probably just an illusion um, that is popular because it's a common and generalizable illusion. So at the end of a bulk, we're often kind of watery and bloated and we're all beefed up. Uh, we're usually like pretty overfed. Um, so we're in a position where we are really at an inflated body weight just due to water weight and GI content and things of that nature. Uh, and in many cases, our total daily energy expenditure is also a bit inflated as well, just because in the context of overfeeding, sometimes we do have an adaptive process where we upregulate our, our total daily energy expenditure. So we're in a kind of unique state at the end of a, a pretty serious bulk where we're pushing the food intake pretty hard. Um, now, sometimes people will shift straight from that state where they're bulking into a cut. Uh, and it'll have a huge drop in calories. There will be a huge initial drop in scale weight. 
uh, you know, your carb and sodium intake go down, uh, maybe glycogen shifts a little bit, drop in water weight, less GI content because you're going from overfeeding to underfeeding. And a lot of people see that initial drop in scale weight and they say, wow, I just lost a tremendous amount of muscle. In reality, that has nothing to do with muscle loss. Um, and, and muscle loss in that scenario is pretty unlikely if you're, if you're putting together your diet effectively. Um, and, and another thing that, that kind of contributes to that is a lot of people do have a tendency, myself included back in the day, to overestimate muscularity during a bulk. Uh, I remember thinking I was just putting on pure muscle until a roommate was like, dude, you've, you've gained a tremendous amount of fat. And I, I think someone needed to tell you and no one would. Yeah. Uh, but it's an impromptu intervention. Yeah. I, I was totally certain that all the weight I was gaining was muscle. And he was like, yeah, it's maybe 15%. Uh, <laughs> so, so that actually is really common though. Like if you talk to someone who's, who's been bulking and just kind of recreationally bodybuilding and you say, how many pounds do you need to lose before you're going to be shredded? A lot of times they'll say 20 when the number's 40. Like when we bulk, we have a tendency uh, because, you know, things are going well, the scale's moving, we're getting stronger. Sometimes we have a tendency to, to overestimate the amount of muscle we're putting on and to underestimate how much fat would need to be lost to get to a particular physique that we have in mind. Uh, and so I think that there's a compounding effect there where people, they do that initial abrupt change from a bulk to a cut, body weight drops really quickly and they think, ah, I think I just lost a lot of muscle. And they decided on the front end, I'm going to lose 20 pounds in this cut. They lose their 20 pounds. They aren't as shredded as they thought they would be. And they say, you know what happened? I lost all that muscle the first couple weeks. That's why I'm not as shredded as I thought I would be 20 pounds lighter. So I think there are a couple different types of illusions that are kind of contributing to this idea that you need to do maintenance to kind of solidify that muscle before you transition to a cut. But at the end of the day, I cannot think of a single physiological reason that you would have to take that approach. I can't think of a mechanistic explanation of why that would be necessary, but I can think of a couple practical reasons why someone might prefer that. So first of all, like I said, it can, it can be uh, quite a drop when you go from fairly aggressive overfeeding to fairly aggressive underfeeding. Uh, and so if you wanted to have kind of a smoother, more predictable transition at the beginning of your cut, just in terms of scale weight, it might make sense to go from overfeeding at the end of your bulk to a little maintenance, let things kind of settle, see exactly where you're at in terms of body weight, and then initiate the cut. You might just get some smoother transitions in terms of scale weight that aren't quite as jarring. Uh, and another practical benefit would be like I said, sometimes with overfeeding during a bulk, we will see that total daily energy expenditure is not just high, but inflated. You know, there's an adaptive increase. And so you might want to, you might consider it to be very practical and, and helpful to drop down to maintenance and kind of see where your ca calories settle there uh, and then use that number to inform your first calorie drop when you transition to a cut. So there might be some practical benefits that make the process a little bit more predictable, um, but but in terms of physiological benefits, uh, I truly can't think of any. Uh, so so it's it's a viable option, but I, I don't consider it to be a a requirement or something that is necessary. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, 
<laughs> I think it's basically the the inverse of something we've talked about before. Like when when someone gets really shredded for a bodybuilding show and then they come out of it, they start overfeeding, and they think like, man, I'm building so much muscle right now. This is incredible. Uh, I got super lean, so my insulin sensitivity is really good right now. And through some physiological process that I can't exactly sketch out for you, I'm sure that that is resulting in tremendous hypertrophy. I, I think it's basically the inverse of this, where, yeah. you know, like, you're already so lean, you're going to have to gain quite a bit of fat before you're going to start seeing, like, really, really big visual changes. And also, like, you're you're seeing relatively small visual changes in terms of fat accumulation, but the scale goes up 10 pounds because, like, hey, you weren't eating before, now you are replenish all of your glycogen you have some more gi contents everything just kind of fills back out and you're like shit man i just put on 12 pounds of muscle in the past month when like you didn't uh and and so i i think that this is the same thing but just in reverse yeah i I think that's a, a very very appropriate analogy there uh all right so greg before we wrap up the show um we would love to hear about your newest article featured on Stronger by Science. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, who would you like to hear talk about uh, hormonal contraceptives for female lifters? Two dudes? Absolutely. That's what many people are saying. Mm-hmm. So so that's what we're going to do. Um, but yeah, no. So I, I recently had an article uh, on Stronger by Science called Do Oral Contraceptives Affect Your Gains? And uh, yeah, so it it was looking at this question. uh, It was nominally a review of a study by Oxfeldt and colleagues called Molecular Markers of Skeletal Muscle Hypertrophy Following 10 Weeks of Resistance Training in Oral Contraceptive Users and Non-Users. So yeah, it, it was nominally a review of that study, but mostly I just wanted to just broadly review the literature, uh, looking at the impact of hormonal contraceptives on strength and hypertrophy outcomes in female lifters. Because I think this is a topic where there at least seems to be a fair bit of misinformation and a fair bit of scaremongering. And fake news. Fake news, yeah. Um, And and I think that, I mean, I think a lot of it just kind of goes back to just some version of the naturalistic fallacy where, or, or an appeal to nature where, you know, um, you just kind of assume that if you're putting synthetic hormones into your body, uh, since that's not natural, something bad must happen. Uh, and, uh, maybe it's going to kill your gains, like whatever. Um, like, I, I think that's kind of the kernel of the, of the line of reasoning that leads uh, a lot of influencers on social media to just flatly recommend that uh, women in their audience not use hormonal contraceptives. Um, you know, they, they say it's going to make it harder to build muscle, uh, attain positive training adaptations. And the thing is, like, that was maybe a tenable position five years ago because uh, there just wasn't that much research on it. Um, and, you know, with with anything, it's not that hard to find negative anecdotes about virtually anything that someone could do so there's not that much research there's plenty of negative anecdotes and you're like well okay like eh, maybe this isn't a good idea uh but within the last five years or so there have been quite a few studies looking like you know studying in a controlled way 
the impact of uh, oral hormonal contraceptives on strength and hypertrophy outcomes. And they just find that it, it doesn't really seem to matter. It uh, doesn't seem to make much of a difference. So at this point, there have been uh, 10 papers published from eight discrete studies comparing strength, lean mass, hypertrophy outcomes in users and non-users of oral contraceptives undergoing the same resistance training program. Um, and uh, by and large, they find really no meaningful difference. And if you're, if you're the type of person who uh, more enjoys a liberal interpretation of research results, where you're like, ah, I don't care about statistical significance, I don't necessarily need to see a meta-analysis that, that confirms that within this body of literature, one thing or the other is better. If, if you're someone who more just, you know, wants, wants to look and see where the wind is blowing, like, is this inconclusive body of literature leaning in one direction or the other? Uh, if at this point it is leaning in one direction or the other, it's actually leaning in the direction of oral contraceptives maybe improving hypertrophy outcomes. I, and I'm not making that as like a strong claim, like they will definitely help you build more muscle. Uh, I, I personally think it doesn't make any material difference. Uh, but if if the literature is leaning one way or the other, uh, that seems to be the way that it's leaning right now. Uh, and like I said, at this point, it's not just based on just one isolated study or one or two papers. Like there's, you know, there's 10 papers in this area, which you know, as with most things in our field, I would love to see a larger body of research on this. You know, like 30 papers are better than 10. Uh, but 10 is a lot better than than for a lot of questions uh, in our area. And they're painting, like, this body of, of literature is painting a pretty cohesive picture. Like, you, you can look at the results uh, of these studies. There's a table uh, linked in the Stronger by Science article uh, that you can check out. Let's see. It is table table five in the article uh, that that just breaks down all of the results of these studies. And uh, yeah, if if oral contraceptives do negatively impact your gains, it has not been observed in the literature to this point. Um, so yeah, I I don't really feel like I need to go super in depth about the Oxfeld paper uh, in particular. Uh, but I, I did just want to note that, like, if if someone does want to claim that oral contraceptives uh, negatively affect strength and hypertrophy outcomes, just know that whatever they're using to make that claim isn't based on actual longitudinal human evidence, because the longitudinal human evidence does not support uh, fear and trepidation around oral contraceptives. Neg negatively affecting uh, hypertrophy or strength outcomes. However, there are two things to note about this body of literature. One, and, and this this is very important, um, and, and this is something that uh, I haven't seen discussed for like all that much among kind of the skeptical audience, like people who share my perspective that oral contraceptives are probably fine for strength and hypertrophy outcomes. There's a major drawback in the literature that I don't see those people who I broadly agree with uh, mentioning very often, and that is the potential for selection bias. So these studies are longitudinal human studies, high-quality evidence, but the highest-quality evidence from intervention studies would be a randomized control trial. So 
You recruit a group of subjects, you randomly assign half of them to one intervention, randomly assign half of them to another intervention. Ideally, you blind people so they don't know which which uh, arm of the study they're in, they don't know which intervention they're getting. Maybe it's the active treatment, maybe it's the placebo. And then you see at the end, you know, did this treatment have an effect? That That is the gold standard, and uh, oral contraception studies and female lifters by and large, aren't RCTs, um, you know, and, and I, there are, there are good ethical reasons for that, like, and, and just practical reasons, you know, if, if you go into a college and you're like, hey, we want to study oral contraceptives, uh, you know, they have these effects, they might have these risks, like, whatever, like, these are discussions you generally have with your doctor, but, you know, half of you, we're, we're just going to put you on birth control, the other half of you, we're going to give you placebos, and we're going to see how that affects hypertrophy. Um, I don't think that many people would sign up for that study. <laughs> so uh, the way these studies tend to work is you just put out a call and you're like, hey, we're doing a, a strength and hypertrophy study. Come to the lab. We'll screen you, like get you in if you meet our, our inclusion criteria. And so they'll recruit subjects who are already using hormonal contraceptives and subjects who aren't currently using hormonal contraceptives. So, like, it's not an RCT, and so there might be the potential for selection bias where it is possible for the research to exist as it is and all of it be correct and very well done and also have a blind spot where it could be that for, you know, some fraction of women, maybe even some relatively large fraction of women, uh, hormonal contraceptives have negative effects, and one of those effects would be hindering strength and hypertrophy, However, that might also be associated with other negative effects that would lead women to discontinue using hormonal contraception in the first place. Um, so I don't know if that is the case, but but that's kind of the point. We don't know if that's the case or not. Like that is a blind spot in the literature. Um, and another potential blind spot, well, this isn't even potential. One definite blind spot in the literature is that uh, <laughs> there are a lot of forms of hormonal contraception that exist that that women have access to and virtually all of the research looking at the impact of hormonal contraceptives on strength and hypertrophy outcomes use second and third generation combined hormonal oral contraception so there are four broad generations of of oral contraceptives uh and I don't know, maybe, maybe the fifth is brewing these days. Who's to say? I, I haven't followed that super closely. But uh, most of the research is just on the second and third generation pills. Uh, there's not any research that I'm aware of on fourth generation pills. And then there are uh, things beyond combined oral contraceptives. So combined oral contraceptives contain uh, either estrogen or some sort of estrogen analog and some form of progestin. Uh, so that's the combined, it's both est estrogen and progestins. Um, but then there are also progestin-only contraceptives. So the, the mini pill, if you've heard of that, that's just a progestin-only oral contraceptive. That's never been tested. Uh, like, it, its effects on strength and hypertrophy. There are uh, progestin-only injections. They have never been tested for their effects on strength and hypertrophy. Uh, like I said, fourth-generation combination pills haven't been tested uh, hormonal I IUDs haven't been tested. Intravaginal inserts haven't been tested. 
and a lot of those things are growing in popularity. Like go back uh, like 10 years ago and the the majority of hormonal contraception used were just second and third generation combination pills. Uh, but especially in recent years, IUDs and intravaginal inserts have gotten a lot more popular and their impact on strength and hypertrophy outcomes hasn't been assessed at this point. Um, I'm not aware of a good a priori reason to suspect that they would have effects that would be way different from second and third generation oral contraceptives, uh, but they might, and, and they haven't been assessed. So uh, the literature as it exists now, it, like if you want to be, you know, if you want to go by the book and not extrapolate and just say like, okay, what has the research actually looked at? And let's not extrapolate beyond that. It's just looking at second and third generation combination pills. Um, so yeah, there's there, there are still some blind spots in terms of other popular forms of hormonal contraception whose impacts on strength and hypertrophy haven't been assessed yet. Um, so yeah, with, with that caveat uh, uh, fully discussed and with the potential s selection bias noted, um, just to reiterate, based on the literature that does currently exist, uh, it doesn't appear that second and third generation combination pills uh, have really any meaningful impact, positive or negative, on strength and hypertrophy outcomes. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. You mentioned that you were not making the claim that oral contraceptives, these hormonal contraceptives, enhance gains, but you actually don't edit the podcast. And so only on Thursday... <laughs> Will you find out exactly what points you did or did not make? So we'll see how creative I can get with the editing. Uh, but for, for all the listeners, if you want to hear the points that Greg has already submitted in writing, uh, be sure to check out that article uh, for all the details. And we will link that article in the show notes. Um, now, Greg, you are our temporary senior uh media correspondent and pop culture correspondent. So what do you have this week to play us out? Yeah, ju just to circle back to the last podcast, I gave a tentative recommendation for the Apple TV series Slow Horses, which is a, a British, uh, I guess, crime, detective, drama, thriller type deal. Um, and I said I had watched all of the episodes that were out up to that point, but the finale had not aired yet. So I gave it a tentative recommendation and said that I still needed to see if it would stick the landing. And I report with great joy that it did. The finale was great. And uh, I was very surprised to see this. I assume season two is coming soon. They kind of kind of gave a look ahead of like, oh, what to expect in season two. And there was a shit ton of footage. I think they've shot the whole thing. Or if not, they're, ve they're very close to it. Um, and I don't know, like a lot of... A lot of British shows, like, man, the, the British entertainment industry, they, they don't do the U.S. thing. Like, the, the U.S. approach to TV shows is just, like, find something that's marketable. It's going to put enough, enough butts in the seats that you can sell ad space. And then just, just run it until the wheels fall off and everyone loses interest. Um, but, you know, like, like, basically find a marketable franchise and just stick with it as long as possible. And if you can get two or three spinoffs out of it, even better. The Brits, I think this makes for for better entertainment products overall. They make art. Yeah, like <laughs> uh they they tend to, you know, do more limited series or stuff that like 
uh, we're going to do a season and then who knows, maybe we'll do season two five years from now. We'll see. Um, so yeah, I, I was watching Slow Horses just assuming that it was a limited series and uh, it wasn't until after the finale aired and they started showing stuff from season two that I was like, oh shit, there's going to be more. Uh, and if it was an American show, I definitely would have anticipated that there would be more, but uh, since it's British, I just assumed that there wasn't. So I was I was pleasantly surprised to see that as well. So uh, if you like Slow Horses, if you check it out, um, there it seems like more is to come. And uh, in my book, that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think probably the best example of the discrepancy there is um, with The Office. Yeah. Uh, it is a great example because we have a UK version and an American version. The UK version, uh, unless I'm mistaken... I believe they had two epi- uh, two seasons with six episodes each and then like a two-part Christmas special. I believe that was the extent of the uh, the UK office canon. Uh, and then they revisited uh, with like kind of an updated documentary type uh, project somewhat recently. Mm-hmm. The American office did, I think, 37 seasons and everyone I know... It, when I when I ask someone, hey, did you watch The Office? The question is, when did you give up? You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, I, I know a lot of people who got, oh, I got six seasons in or seven in. I don't remember exactly how many they did, but yeah, it was just a completely different approach to how television works. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, cool. Yeah, I. It, it's funny you mentioned the idea of sticking the landing with with a season or with a show. Um, I was uh, driving back on Saturday night. Mm-hmm. Uh, from your place to my place, uh, my girlfriend and I were driving back and we had a conversation that we've had 30 times before. Um, and it was just lamenting the ending of, of two different shows. Like, cause I only watch like over a decade's time. I may only get to eight shows. You know what I mean? It's very funny. Like we, so audience, here's, here's a fun bit of history about mine and Eric's friendship. One of the first things we bonded over and and like the the main thing that we started doing to hang out outside of the lab, outside of a work context, was you would come over to watch Game of Thrones yeah. uh, every Sunday. And, and that was where we started hanging out just on a more regular basis. And so uh, there was that. Then there was Westworld. Like you, you were early on like my TV buddy, like yeah. a, a, a dude who was fun to watch TV and drink beer with. And then I come to find out you don't watch any TV. No, th- those are two of the like six shows that I've watched over the last <laughs> several years. Um, but no, the, the funny thing is the the whole car ride home, we were talking about how just absolutely terrible the end of Game of Thrones was. Um, and then you know how disgruntled I am about the trajectory that Westworld is on. Uh, I thought the first two seasons were incredible. The third I absolutely hated. And the fourth I'm a little bit concerned about. Uh but yeah, it's always nice when a show uh, is able, whether you're talking about within a season or within the entire series, when you're able to wrap things up and do a great job with the finale, uh, that, that goes a really long way in my book. Yeah. Um, cool. All right. So I think that does it for this episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. As always, thank you so much for joining us, and we will be back soon with another episode. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. 
If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.